The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you. Good day to you, Stephen. Well, I hope you're surviving the, the heat wave we've had out here on the west coast of the United States. Yeah, I am. It, it was interesting to see uh, weather events, you know, the change from we had a lot of humidity on the central coast and then high temps and then some rain, a little bit of a rain burst. And uh, it's kind of getting back to what I'd call normal right now. Well, I have to tell you, it's particularly tough for us here a little north north of you because, as most people know, we, we get pretty temperate weather here on the West Coast. That's why most of us live here. And since I'm stone's throw from the ocean that in our areas usually stays in the high 50s, it's like having this giant air conditioning chiller out there to chill the breeze. And we had no breeze and temperatures well into the hundreds here. A very difficult weather for us. Yeah, but it didn't phase you. I mean, you're used to the high temps, right, Texas? I called back to Texas, and I was whining to my parents. said it was 92 degrees in my house, and we have no air conditioning. So, And, and I know our engineer, Kevin's in Arizona, and he doesn't cut us any slack at all because he, he can tell us about actual heat. I right? know. We can't even get his attention unless we're in like 118s, 120 range. I know, but it, it's. I think we do adjust, and I've adjusted to the coastal climate. It was a little past week. Speaking of adjusting, um, it dawned on me, well, it dawned on us because it's our topic today. Congress is going to uh, reconvene after a full month off. And speaking of adjustment and uh, coming to the table, there is a lot on the menu, isn't there? There sure is. They've got a busy September. I thought that'd be a great thing for us to talk about today because a number of the issues are legislative, which is the origin of many of our laws. Uh, They've got a busy September. I I do have to say, just not to snipe too much, but I suspect if either you or I had accomplished absolutely none of our objectives in the first four or five months of our work, we wouldn't go take a month vacation. But that's just me saying that. You know, it's not just you. I'm going to join in that refrain. I looked at the calendar, Mitch, and I was trying to get a read on what exactly um, is on the menu and and looked at it in terms of an agenda. And I did think about it in terms of, uh, you know, crossover into any other kind of profession. And I don't know how you possibly uh, forecast or in many ways to me, it seems like there's a lack of forecasting. Uh, I'll bet they all had a nice holiday and a nice break. Break, but as I look at uh, the significant issues that they need to address in September and the number of days that they actually convene, it's alarming. It, well, I have to join with you on that. I think the country should be alarmed that, that our Congress needs to get back in and get to work and actually do some of the required things they're they're supposed to do. Let's just talk briefly about forecasting. I, I'd like to spend a chunk of today talking about DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, because that was the big news of the week. But but so that we don't forget it, you know, by the end of the month, Congress is supposed to take another budget action. And 
And I don't know about your office at the district attorney's office, but I can certainly tell you that the law schools that I run have to have an annual budget, and we have deadlines for that budget. And I do not wait until the 11th hour and then go to my board of directors and say, oh, you know, I just didn't get it done. Let's wait until another three or four months. And, I, you know, let's just operate for three or four months. Just trust me on that. I'll get back around to that budget when it's a little more convenient. It doesn't work that way, period. And, you know, Mitch, with the fiscal year looming and you look at just how the clock is ticking, uh, one wonders exactly how they're going to cobble together a budget because it's uh, not quite clear that they will in time. I think you're right. But well, they do have a deadline, as you've just said. The end of this month is the end of the U.S. government's fiscal year, and they must have certain legal things in place for the United States government to continue to operate. And that seems amazing to most of us that the government has those type of rigid rules, but it does. And the rule is that they must have certain budgetary uh, things in place by the end of this month. And as you've said, they've only got about 12, 13 working days left to do it. And one of them is something we're hearing discussed, which is a, a continuing resolution or an extension of the debt ceiling. So, the government is restricted. They don't get to just print money. They have to borrow the money if they don't have the cash in hand. That probably sounds familiar to all the rest of us. And they need legislative approval to do it. The president doesn't get to do it. The courts don't get to do it. Congress must approve the budget or the borrowing of the United States. And they have a deadline by the end of this month to approve additional borrowing for the U.S. government, or they literally have to stop sending out certain checks. And and that reference, Mitch, to sending out checks or stopping uh, payment flows uh, brings up that ominous word of government shutdown. And we can talk about that a little later. I know you wanted to get into DACA first, but I think it might be uh, noteworthy to discuss what that really means when you hear the word government shutdown, because I think there's a lot of misnomers about that. Okay, let's let's talk about that after the break. Let's sure. start with DACA. I'd like to do that because that's the the hot item on in the news this week. This is this is a presidential order or presidential action from President Obama. It's the deferred action for childhood arrivals. And and simply put, this was an opportunity for individuals generally who came into the United States when they were four or five years old. So these are children. So it's the deferred action of childhood arrivals. Clearly someone who's three, four, five years old doesn't have control over their mobility. They're brought by parents or relatives into the country. They were not brought in with legal documentation and now they're adults. So the, the, their college age they would like to go to college, they would like to have jobs, and they lack some of the documentation in order to be able to do that seamlessly. And the DACA process provided very specific rules and registration for a very specific category of those students. It's estimated there's about 800 to 900,000 of them in the United States. That said, because they were children and had no affirmative act in the role of being here without proper immigration documentation, they shouldn't be punished. And essentially, the only life they know is that of living in the United States. They've been here since a very young age. So the Obama administration attempted to do this by legislation, and they did not get it passed. Therefore, the president used the executive authority to issue an executive order on DACA. And that should sound very familiar, Stephen, because President Trump has been very active in sitting at the Oval, in the Oval Office at the Resolute Desk and signing executive actions. We've seen hours of him sitting there and holding up things that he has signed. So he's been very fond of executive action and is not unique in that. Each president before him has done that as well. So that's that's kind of the framework. That is what DACA was. And this week, through the attorney general, 
President Trump has announced that he wants to then rescind Obama's executive action on DACA. Right, so I've kind of set it up for you there. Okay, so the executive order reference mentioned a couple of the things that you've mentioned. First of all, historically, I think you're absolutely correct that many presidents have been quite active in the issuance of executive orders. So there's nothing really uncommon there uh, as far as the frequency or number of executive orders. I didn't do any empirical research on it, you know, to roll out the number of executive orders, but I think you call attention to an important issue and it would be the difference between executive orders and con- congressional acts or acts of Congress. Um, and that's a topic we've taken on before. Um, as you introduced DACA, I think you referenced something really important, and that is the age of the children upon entry into the United States. And one legal issue to me that's really important when you look at DACA is that we're talking about children who really didn't have necessarily a say in crossing the border, so to speak. Uh, And I can't help but think of things like detrimental reliance and concepts like promissory estoppel and notions that I think abound when you think about a child growing up in the United States, acclimating, adapting to uh, the way of life in the United States. So uh, as far as the basis behind allowing uh, DACA to pass so as to protect this pool of individuals, I think it's absolutely laudable. That would be my opinion. Um, As you know, one more thing, Mitch, before you fire back is that, you know, the failed attempt uh, during the Obama administration to get legislative action uh, to address this issue, I don't think that signals the end of that. In other words, I still think that there will be some legislative action taken, um, and it's my hope that it will be in the spirit of the original DACA uh, plan. Well, I think you and I agree 100% on, on absolutely everything you just said. So let me break it up into three parts, because as, as everyone knows, we try to educate on this show and try to help you understand, the, our listeners understand the legal differentiation here. So, so step one, you made the comment that, that this was executive action, not legislative action, and that's, that's an important distinction, because an executive order is not law. It, it's lawful. It's within the rights of the administration to give orders to the executive branch of the U.S. government. We've talked about the three branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary. We've talked about each one of them at different times. And so this time we're talking about the executive. It's, it's well within the authority of the chief executive of the United States, the president of the United States, to give direction through executive orders and executive actions to the executive departments of the government that answer to the president. Okay, so it's long established. This is perfectly okay. Uh, Different presidents have gone to different lengths with it, but it's not law. It's merely the direction of the CEO to those who work for the CEO about priorities. And it's, it's no different than when the president wanted to use an executive order to deal with sanctuary cities and he directed the attorney general and other departments of the u.s government that work up through the executive department to the president to take or not take certain actions related to sanctuary cities so again it's not law but it is lawful right and then after the break we can talk a little more about the fact that why is it temporary well it's temporary Because as an executive order, the next executive, the next president, is fully within their rights to then continue it, rescind it, or change it. Yeah, great point, Mitch. It doesn't carry over like an inheritance, and that is a good, good uh, point to raise, uh, and a good good timing, too, because we're going to shift into a break pretty soon. But it's obvious we need to continue our discussion on DACA and then also distinguish between executive orders and congressional acts. And I know you also want to speak about Attorney General Sessions and his role, specifically his uh, communication skills and how he communicated Uh, executive orders and his references to DACA. So when we come back from this break, we will continue our discussion about Congress and the laws that are now pending. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. 
Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, this is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepherd Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepherd Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Back to Wagner and Winnick on the law. If you are just joining us, we're having a discussion about the deferred action for childhood arrivals, so-called DACA. And we're doing this uh, with the backdrop of Congress now being back in session and all of the uh, matters, the agenda items that Congress must now address. And before the break, Mitch, we were talking about the difference between executive orders and congressional acts, and I think we did a, a good job di distinguishing between those two, but um, as I introduced the idea of communicating to the public and the role of Attorney General Jeff Sessions, because, of course, President Trump turned to Attorney General Sessions to be the, I'm going to use the word spokesperson at one point, uh, to define DACA and what's going on. Well, you're right, Stephen, and that, that was, I thought, an interesting political uh, move because it, again, was a presidential order. One would assume the president might like to weigh in on it, but for whatever reasons, the calculus, he, the political calculus the president took was to hand this over to Jeff Sessions, who's our attorney general. Uh, let, let me weigh in a little on that. Uh, when the attorney general of the United States speaks... I have, and this is not new, this is not the first time you've heard me say this, uh, I have high expectations. When the top lawyer of the United States speaks, I hope and expect for him to speak with a level of accuracy and authority and integrity about the law. Not necessarily about the policy, but about the law. He's the top lawyer. And maybe that's just because you and I are educators that we 
feel so strongly about that, but I, I do. And, and here's my problem. As I've said, I have no problem with the president's decision to use his legal authority to either add or, or cease an executive order. Perfectly okay. But the attorney general ought to explain it. In, in a way that I think reflects the actual law. And his comments in announcing this this week were that this was an illegal and unconstitutional act. He highlighted that this was an illegal and unconstitutional act by the previous administration. And therefore, as attorney general, he was glad that this was being terminated and that they would then begin enforcing the immigration laws as he's interpreted them. So, Mitch, let me just jump in. So, that's sure. a reference. That's a reference to, uh, obviously, a critical reference to President Obama's executive order. Correct. Oh, yes, yes. He wasn't talking about Trump. Sorry, he was talking about the previous administration. So, here's my problem with it, Stephen. I'd, I'd be, I'd welcome your opinion on it as well. First of all, something's not illegal, and unless it's been found to be illegal, it could be alleged to be illegal. It could be his opinion that it's illegal, but he stands there as the top lawyer of the country and saying, this is illegal. Well, he knows better than that. It's not illegal. It has not been found to be illegal. It's not been determined by a court to be illegal. It was a political opinion from one administration to another. So his use of that I find offensive because it's just inflammatory and inaccurate. He then proceeded to say it was unconstitutional. There's actually been no finding that it's unconstitutional either. I would actually argue that both what Trump is doing and what Obama is doing is well within the constitutional rights of an executive order. And so, therefore, there's clearly going to be an argument on both sides. It's not really the role of the attorney general, nor is it usually the role of a district attorney or a state attorney to determine the constitutionality of an item. That's the court's role. They are the enforcer, not the interpreter. And so I'm really bothered by him being, it's not just inartful, it's being intentionally inaccurate in categorizing this. He could have accomplished it in a way that informed people as we have. This is, it was, it was within the rights of the Obama administration to do it. We disagree with the policy. And we're do, doing away with the policy. Perfectly okay, perfectly accurate, gets to the same exact answer. So that's my problem with it. Okay. Let me respond. Okay. Because it would, it, it would not make for good radio if I simply endorse everything you say. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Okay. And in the spirit of that mantra, let me just say this. <laughs> and I think, you know, you opened with something interesting, and it's the idea of having Attorney General Sessions, or uh, Jeff Sessions, sorry, Attorney General Jeff Sessions uh, serve in the role uh, of spokesperson to announce or to actually mount the rostrum to make statements like this. And, and I think you made a good kind of uh, reference to the, the, um, the political side of this and the fact that he was chosen to do it rather than President Trump. Um, so first, I'll, I'll just attempt to defend Sessions' term or, the, of, uh, or use of the term illegal. Um, and again, I'm not saying this is a winning argument, but it may have been a reference to the fact that President Obama's executive order did not parlay into or ripen into legislative action that went on to become a law. So your comment that referencing something or labeling something as illegal suggests that there's an actual statute outlaw outlawing the action, and you're absolutely right, that's not true. But it's possible that it was intended as a reference to it didn't pass congressional scrutiny okay that's you buying a, that partially not, or not, no i'm not buying it but i think that's a good that's uh, we're trying to be balanced here and i think that's a good way that they perhaps have thought about it yeah and i mean the same you know a reference to it being unconstitutional i you know it didn't pass legislative scrutiny and i'm not so sure that that serves as a rationale or a basis for calling it unconstitutional so you know, it, it does seem inflammatory. I have to agree with you in that regard. Uh, and as far as the attorney general serving really as uh, 
being more in a role of communicating the laws, Mitch, I do think you make a good point there because there is an opportunity to explain um, in many ways in, in lay terms what's going on. I think that would probably be refreshing, quite frankly. I agree. Obviously, I feel strongly about it. I, but then you and I feel that way. We believe that we all benefit by understanding with some accuracy how the law is defined, how it affects each of us. And uh, I, I, I've used the term fear-mongering before. I, it offends me when that is, is used as a way to try to influence people's thoughts about the law. The law isn't the law. The attorney general's office, the courts, the justice system—it it, it, it truly offends me at my core <clears throat> when there's fear mongering to to try to get people to be afraid of the instruments of justice, to be afraid of the police, to be afraid of the judicial system, to be afraid of the attorney general's office, and, and I. It, it doesn't help any of us, regardless of one's political stripe, when you when you go down that path. And and perhaps that's just because you and I have spent so much of our career embedded within the the continuum of justice, where we see it, it's truly there as the leveler, as the to create the even playing field for those who do not have power. They're given power through the justice system. And, and perhaps that's what sets me off when you have the Attorney General of the United States do what I characterize as taking a more fear-mongering approach to say you should be afraid of us if you're in certain categories. And I'll just end this kind of rant on this by saying that you know he ended his comments by talking about you know, the reason we needed to do away with DACA and enforce the current immigration laws is because of terrorism and fear at our borders. We've got 800, 900,000 young individuals living in this country who had to go through rigorous scrutiny, repeated registration, and have jobs. How he bridged from that category of of individuals who, who some say may be contributing $200 million to the U.S. economy to equating them with terrorists of course, just put me right over the edge. So yeah. there you okay. have it. No, I get it. I get it. And, and from an optics perspective, I, I can't help but think about decorum, general rules of decorum also, because there it's easy to interpret the comments by Attorney General Sessions as really being uh, blows to the past administration. I mean, hypercritical blows to what happened in the past. And I think that may have been uh, his time could have been better spent uh, defining things in a little bit more artful way. So I, I have to agree with you uh, on that front. Maybe his time could be better spent actually working to defend us against actual terrorists, not against 800 young folks who are working for a living. Okay. Okay. I mean, I'm not, re- <laughs> I'm not ready to concede that the, that, that reference was that out of bounds necessarily. So let's talk about something even more interesting, taxes. <laughs> no. well, let's talk about some of the other, because I do want to, you, you, you pointed out, it's a busy month. Obviously, yeah, yeah. there's let's a big go. thing this week, but there's a lot of other things that are happening this month. Uh, let me just talk about one somewhat obscure, but possibly still important issue. Uh, it, everybody thinks the the discussion and dialogue about Obamacare and health care is, is over. I, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I believe there's some serious issues that Congress need to still address, regardless of which side of the argument you're on, on the health care system. And the, the reason I bring that up is because there is one specific element of that dialogue that is affected this month. And that's the aspect of addressing limitations of Obamacare uh, from a from a tax and budget standpoint. Uh, people may recall that the effort to repeal Obamacare was being voted on on a majority vote in the Senate. And there was the, the big midnight showdown in which they failed to get the 51 votes. And one says, well, isn't that the way you pass legislation. And the fact of the matter is, no. 
you need to have 60 votes to pass major legislation. And without going into the huge detail of why that's true, just take that on faith for a moment, except for certain type of budget items. And they come through a process called reconciliation. And that, that is specifically limited budget issues, and that's where we started the show. This month is a deadline for the last month of this fiscal year for the government. And so those items that Congress was trying to bring forth in the Senate to just have voted on a 51-vote majority have to fit the definition of reconciliation, which is they have to be a specific budget item and cannot be a policy new law item. And that's why the Obamacare repeal was being brought forth as a budget reconciliation issue and wasn't being put to the 60-vote test. Well, that's about to expire the end of this month. You've got a new budget year, and it'll have to start all over again. So I just bring that up because one would say, well, maybe Obamacare is put to the side. Well, the pending efforts to repeal will be put to the side under reconciliation unless there's a brand new effort made in the new budgetary year to bring an an additional argument that it's based on the budget and not on policy. Well, okay, so that's a that's a good point, and that's one of the residual parts of Obamacare having to do with balancing the books, and that's correct. And and with the October first deadline looming, tick 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 tick, that's got to be resolved. Even before we get to merits and implementation, right, of any kind of change to Obamacare. That's right, because it it will essentially, if there's no additional effort, and I'm not sure there will be, but but as you just pointed out, there's a deadline to make the decision Do they try to bring it up again, the budgetary aspects between now and the end of this month, or do you just bring it back through the legislative process in the new budget year after October one? And it needs to come through and get 60 votes, not 51 votes. Right, got it. Okay, so as we uh, mentioned in the beginning, Mitch, there's a number of other issues that we want to get to, and we will do so after the break because Congress has many, many items on the agenda. And there's also uh, hurricane relief efforts that we need to address also because those creep into the factor, although they don't have hard deadlines there's fiscal impacts galore on issues having to do with hurricane rescue attempts. We'll be right back after this short break. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We will continue our discussion on Congress when we come back. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. 
That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law, Mitch. I, I don't know about you. I was dancing in the studio on my side of the, <laughs> the equation. Kevin, Kevin gave us some bumper music that's just right on point. Wow. That was great. That's probably the only context in which I enjoy hearing the word tax. <laughs> I think you're right. Good lead in because uh, taxes and expenditures are one of the topics that uh, Congress has on their plate, Mitch. We do have a list of items that we were intending to reach, and one of them uh, might relate to the issue of relief and uh, fiscal obligations and whether or not there are coffers available for things like hurricane relief. Yeah, it's important to know, and this could be easily confusing. So we've talked about the deadline coming the end of this month for certain types of funding and permissions. What's interesting is there is an exemption to that process for emergency funding. And so the the idea of being able to provide, uh, there's discussion of seven or eight uh, billion dollars billion dollars with a B to provide additional emergency relief to the victims of Hurricane Harvey in Texas and Louisiana. And that doesn't necessarily have to go through the regular budgetary process. So, so if, if folks are wondering why is this this discussion on one hand about they're going to shut down the government and they can't issue money, on the other hand, they're talking about immediately sending seven or eight billion dollars down to the hurricane relief they're really separate processes that said it is possible to tie hurricane relief dollars to things such as the debt ceiling uh, extension so on one hand it could be done independently or it could be brought forward tied to a deadline item such as extension of the debt relief and this week that has been absolutely in the news as the president and congressional leaders have been discussing whether or not the the hurricane harvey debt relief is going to come through as a what they call a clean bill completely on its own or tied to another measure which would merely be a political effort to force a vote on the debt ceiling extension by tying it to something that has complete you know, bilateral support, uh, bipartisan support, which is getting the needed relief to the victims of the hurricane. Yeah, I remember in preparation, I was looking back at some of the uh, legislative priorities and, and got into some of the past events. And one of those was Hurricane Sandy. And there was... $60 billion, I think, in help for Hurricane Sandy. That's exactly right. There's the estimates. We're, we're not even sure yet, but it could easily, the Hurricane Harvey, because you know, it hit Houston, which is the fourth largest city in the United States and the whole surrounding area. There's discussion that before this is all over, and we're talking years, not weeks or months, years of rebuilding, uh, this could end up being a $100 billion expenditure 
by the time it's all done. Yeah, the, the other thing I was going to add to that, Mitch, is that in the case of Sandy, there was a, a lengthy debate that took, I think, a month and a half or maybe even two months uh, before the it was settled as to how monies would be dispersed and the issue of how long uh, affected cities, states can wait for funding is a big issue. And here, you know, the other thing, Mitch, that's interesting is these events happen. That's part of life along with the regular agenda items. And I can't help but wonder about things like taking a full month of August off. Uh, <laughs> You're back to that. I am. I'm sorry. It's a rock in my shoe. It's a long time off. <laughs> it's just, oh gosh, I just, it's bad housekeeping. I, I, no, I 100% agree with you. It seems to me that there should be, there's been an attempt. It's never been voted in. It's been brought up again that perhaps congressional salaries should stop every day beyond that they don't provide a budget under which they're working. Mm-hmm. Might be an incentive to actually get the job done. I think I'm in favor of that. Yeah. I mean, if you're not doing the work, why should you be paid for it, right? Yeah, I do too. I mean, most professions are all merit-based in terms of advancement, right? Yes. So I I think there ought to be some metrics in place like that. And and let me throw in one last thing on this discussion of hurricane relief because I don't – it doesn't look like it's going this direction, but it was certainly part of the discussion. We talked about – there was discussion of tying hurricane relief to the – to the debt ceiling. Uh, there's also, as part of the discussion of the budget, there's there's always this offset, and that was part of the Obamacare reconciliation discussion to really tie that back in, is that there's, there's a, a discussion about for every new tax, there should be the reduction of an old tax, and for every new expenditure, there should be a, a balancing reduction of an existing expenditure. And so one of the, what I I think is a somewhat more inflammatory approach is to say, well, if you need $60 billion of hurricane relief down in Texas, you better tell me where you're going to take $60 billion away from another existing program. And that became part of the Hurricane Sandy discussion as well. Very controversial way to deal with disaster relief and rebuilding is to say, well, you want to rebuild Texas, but you better take it away from citizens everywhere else in the United States. Tell me what they're going to no longer get so that we can fund this other group that's been damaged. Yeah, and you know, Mitch, you had referenced the importance of communicating and I think there's a topic right there where some better communication would be in order because there's always going to be competition among states that are impacted by nat- natural disasters like this. And obviously, there is a lot going on behind the scenes in terms of the vying for some of those funds and the priority system that's in place, at least ostensibly, in place for the distribution of relief funding. Uh, and I, two two additional things. I, you're exactly right. Let me just toss in two things on that. There, there are elements. Uh, I talked about a disaster relief being independent and clean from the other rules that are going on this month. Uh, that's not 100% true because some of the FEMA funding and, and emergency funding that is flowing now, not part of the new emergency relief, but the existing expenditures, if there's not a debt ceiling addition by the end of this month, there could be delays in some of those payments because just like anything else, they're coming and flowing out of the you know, the bank account of the existing expenditures. And those need the debt ceiling to go up to continue. So they could be vulnerable to payments by the end of this month of being stopped if there's not a debt ceiling increase. Yeah, that's a good point. So let me toss in a couple other things. Uh, Not as much on the, the front burner with all of these other things going on and include, you know, we talk about disaster relief and we, obviously send out our, our thoughts and prayers to Florida as a massive hurricane is bearing through the Caribbean towards Florida. We, we may be doubling our concerns about uh, disaster relief here in a matter of days. Uh, but setting that aside for the moment, uh, your comment that there's still other business to be done is, is correct. 
Uh, there's funding that must be determined for the Children's Health Insurance Program, which is a relatively small program, but affects 9 million low-income children. And it's a 20-year-old federal program. It's been through both Democratic and Republican administrations, but it needs to be renewed by the end of this month for the 9 million children who are on that federal health insurance program to continue to have access to benefits. You're, so, you're referencing the, the low-income uh, children, right? Are those that have qualified correct. per those parameters? That's right. They te- they, these are for families who earn too much to qualify for Medicaid, but still need some supplemental help for a special insurance program. And again, this one's been around for 20 years, uh, not controversial, just there's, it's worrisome because there's fear that it could get lost in the shuffle of everything else that we're talking about. And it has a deadline for funding by the end of this month as well. Yeah. And, you know, Mitch, one other thing, uh, if you don't mind, I wanted to return to, because I had referenced this idea of shutting down the government. And, you know, this has come up in the news uh, directly connected to President Trump's uh, references to shutting down the government if there's no funding for the wall, the wall funding. Um, that's got a lot of throw the wall in here in the last three minutes of the program. Why not not stir the pot and make us race, race, uh, race with the clock. No, but I I wanted to introduce it because this idea of shutting down the government is interesting. I don't know if you've ever experienced this one, but when there has been, um, threats to shut down the government or some defunding, what's typically happened is hours have been reduced in certain government agencies. Um, There's no true shutdown where the wheels don't move at all. Um, What usually happens is there are directives sent down so that hours are trimmed significantly. I can recall going to court, federal court in San Jose once, uh, while this had happened, and it meant that there were abbreviated hours at the clerk's office or abbreviated hours in certain uh, functions and and uh, reduced uh, time as far as uh, amount of time that, that these services were open. So it's a little bit of a misnomer to say there's a complete shutdown. No, that's right. It's what, what ends up happening, and, and your point is, is well made, it's not a complete shutdown. What happens is the, the Treasury Secretary and the Office of Management and Budget have to get together and say, you know, let's uh, to make it simple. We have $100 to spend. We have $20 in the bank. Where are we going to spend the $20? And so it's, it's not that the government has no money. It's just that they don't have the authority to spend 100% of what's due on October 1st without an extension of the debt ceiling. And so you're correct. Those type of decisions are made both in reducing certain services, delaying certain payments, and then in, in, in it, the problem I have with this, and I'm an old contracts lawyer, and so what offends me doesn't always offend everybody else. But these are not new obligations of the government. Everything you just talked about and I just mentioned, these are existing contractual obligations. You, we, we owe you for, for a contract to do services. Well, we don't have enough money, so we're just not going to pay you what we owe you. We owe you Medicare, Medicaid payments on a certain date. Well, we're going to be two weeks late because we didn't manage our system well enough. So, so I actually could take this down an entire road of discussing that why it offends me because it's a violation of fundamental contract contractual principles but yeah that's another a topic for another day you're, you're a four corners guy it would be a breach of performance would. clearly a breach yeah not just a political and policy breach a contractual breach it's that's not okay no it's not <laughs> all right, all right. we'll turn to you we're coming to the end of the segment we are we're coming to another great great segment uh, next week, let's just tease our topic next week. One of the other federal issues that's an interesting uh, juxtaposition between federal law and state law is cannabis and marijuana, both on recreational and medical. So 
next week, tune in to talk about the issues between cannabis law, medical marijuana law, and recreational marijuana. You've been listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. As we say to you each week, you can hear an archive of today's program at voiceamericabusiness.com or at wagnerandwinnick.com. Please remember, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child, so quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandy Louise, and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistance, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 